Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? My name is Blake. I uh, would love to introduce myself to you if I haven't met you before after today's gathering. And this is Sermon 52. We made it, man. The 52nd sermon. And so, so far, we've had 51 hermeneutical theological masterpieces. That's what Pastor Chris told me to say to you guys. <laughs> and so, hopefully, today I can live up to those expectations. So this is the grand finale of the last message that will ever be preached in 2019, and it's also the last message that will ever be preached inside of this decade. Like we're transitioning, we do this every year, you know that, right? We transition, we have these New Year's resolutions that we list out into a brand new year, uh, but this time we're transitioning into a brand new decade. And whether you know it or not, everybody inside of this room brought some baggage with them. Like, not like, you know, real baggage, but like proverbial baggage. You brought it with you into this room. You've brought wins, you've brought losses, you've brought good, you've brought bad, you've brought excellent things, you've brought some things that you wish that you could go back, you wish that there was a time machine and you could go back and, and, and do it over again, like get a mulligan, you know what I'm saying, like you do in golf. But we bring all of that with us as we transition and cross over this threshold from one year to the next and from one decade to the next. And this morning, I wanna talk about one of the most precious commodities that you need to make sure that's packed inside of your luggage as you leave this year and enter into another one, as you leave this decade and enter into another decade. And I wanna talk with you about this very powerful substance that when I first kind of roll it out into the room, you're gonna be like, really? Like, like that's the Sermon 52? Like that's the hermeneutical theological masterpiece? But as we begin to take the scenic route through an Old Testament character and uncover this very powerful substance called empathy, you're gonna realize that man, it's more precious than gold. So before we get into it, let me pray. Can I do that? So if everyone would just pray along with me, pray for me as I pray aloud. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God, for every single person inside of this room. And my ask of you today is, is that I sit down and that you stand up. Lord, as we, as we talk about this very crucial substance that needs to be inside of all of our lives, Lord, may the power of the Holy Spirit take my words and penetrate the hearts of those that are inside of this place. Lord, I know that there's some people that have walked inside of this room, don't have to be a prophet to know that they've stumbled inside of this room with all kinds of issues, all kinds of baggage. And Lord, I just pray that this word, that this message that's gonna be proclaimed would lighten their load this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Samuel kicks off, this is the character that we're gonna look at to unveil this very powerful substance of empathy by introducing us to a gentleman by the name of Elkanah. So 1 Samuel, we shake hands with this guy, his name's Elkanah, don't name your kids that. If you're expecting in 2020, that's a terrible name to name your kid. Very quickly, you're also introduced to Elkanah's wife. His wife's name is Hannah. And a pretty personal issue is revealed about Hannah in the next several verses. She's infertile. Infertility is an enormous problem in our culture today. Wouldn't you agree with that? I know women today who are miserable because they can't have babies, but believe it or not, this problem inside of biblical times brought, brought a special type of misery because the cultural expectations of that day 
for a woman was that you fulfilled your purpose by bringing a child into the world. Producing babies was an unfair cultural expectation for women, and if you couldn't have a child, you were viewed as an oxygen thief. As a woman, she would have been treated like a second-class citizen. As a woman, Hannah would have wanted to, to live up to this, this cultural norm and be able to, to give her husband a child, but she wasn't able to do so because she was infertile, and it showed up inside of her emotions. She was a train wreck. Like if you go back and, and carefully read over her life, you'll know that she was miserable emotionally, that she had all of these, these issues that just pervaded her head and heart because she didn't feel as if she was able to measure up. So here's a couple of snapshots of what I'm talking about. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. She wept. This was the, the story of her life is that she was always sorrowful and she never ate anything. Her husband, Elkanai, who loved her, by the way, the Bible tells us that, that he loved her uh, dearly, he steps into this sorrow and does what most of us husbands would do. He makes it worse. So in verse 8, And Elkanai, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Now, I want you to take some notes if you're a dude inside of this room because this is what not to do inside of this new decade, okay? Here's what he did. Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? This is his response to his wife who is pleading to the Lord so that she can have a baby. So Hannah takes her situation to the Lord. Her husband can't help her. And she's in the temple pouring her heart out before the Lord regarding her condition. She makes a commitment to the Lord. This is the commitment that she makes to God. And you'll see in just a little bit that she makes good on this commitment. She says, God, if you'll give me a baby, if you'll open up my womb, then I will give this child back to you when it's the appropriate time. So she's saying this prayer, and it must have been like a wild, outrageous type of prayer because the high priest was looking on, and he sees her. And look at this, this interaction, this encounter that Hannah is now having with another man. This man is the high priest. And she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. So her husband says some nonsense, and then Eli, who's supposed to be the spiritual leader inside of the nation of Israel, he mistakes her for a drunk woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered her. Now notice he didn't say, hey, so what are you praying about? He doesn't even ask her to fill out a connection card. Doesn't do any of that. He just looks at her and says this, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And he said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So she's at temple, she's at church, and they load up and they begin their journey back to uh, the house that they lived and, and Hannah got home and, and her and her husband did that thing that you do in order to get pregnant. I think there's a stork involved or something like that. And she got pregnant. And nine months later, she has a baby. 
Imagine, man, the the emotions that she's feeling, like for the first time, she feels as if she's living up to the cultural norm, to the expectations that has been placed upon her inside of biblical times. She's finally a mother, and she names him Samuel. Samuel means God heard because God heard her prayer. When she cried out, God heard her prayer, and so she labeled him Samuel. God heard my prayer. The boy grew up and it was time to make good on the commitment she made to the Lord before Samuel was conceived. Remember that? What did she say? She said, I'm going to give this child back to you if you will just bless me and open up my womb. Now, you, you would think that this was like a metaphor or something, right? That she's gonna give him back to the Lord metaphorically, that she's gonna you know, bring him up on the platform and dedicate him and the child parent dedication, you know, something like that, give him back to the Lord. But that's not what it meant. This is what it meant. It says, after a process of time, after he was weaned, so I don't know how old he was at that time, but after he was weaned, she took little Samuel and she buckled him inside of the car seat in the back of the minivan, and she began to take the trek back to the temple, and when she arrives, Eli is there to greet her, and Hannah, you'll have to excuse my biblical imagination here, says, hey, do you remember me? Now, if Eli is anything like me, I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, okay? And so he probably does not even remember this interaction. It was brief. He probably shooed her away with his response in verse 17 and 18. Hey, just go, peace be with you. Just go ahead and get out of here. You know, he, he thought that she was drunk, right? And I'm not so sure that, that her saying that she wasn't convinced him. But here she is back at the temple and she says, hey, remember me, I'm that girl that you prayed for and you didn't even know what you were praying for, but I was praying so that I could have a baby and I had a baby and I named him Samuel and I made a commitment to the Lord that I'm gonna give him back, so here he is. So think about this. You got this little kid and if he's like my five-year-old, he's tucked in behind his mom, holding on for dear life, with a blankie in one hand, maybe a teddy bear in the other, and she's peeling Samuel off of her, and she's transitioning him over to the temple so that he can become a priest inside of the temple of God. That's the type of commitment that she was making. It must have been so hard, but she made the commitment, and Hannah made good on her vow by giving Eli her son Samuel. Now fast forward. This is insane. But fast forward, Samuel's life, he's now a small boy and he's grown up inside of the temple with Eli and the other high priest. And this is the description of Samuel after we see him a few years later. Theologians believe that he's somewhere between eight to 10 years old. In 1 Samuel chapter two, verse 18, it says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, that's what he was doing, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. That's what he was wearing. One translation says it like this, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this in the temple, a boy dressed in a priestly linen tunic served God. Now you would think the reason why this little boy is serving God is because he's had a great deal of spiritual formation inside of the temple. And he's grown into 
this incredible servant of God because he's got these unbelievable godly examples surrounding him. And so, man, he's just kind of, he's just kind of being formed in the image of the environment that he's being raised in. But this was not the case. In fact, Eli was one of the most undisciplined men inside of the nation of Israel. The Bible actually calls him something. I love the Bible because it's raw and it's real. It calls him fat. It said he was a fat guy. And, we, and it wasn't to make fun of him. It was to show how undisciplined he was. And it didn't just exist like in my inability to push away from the table inside of uh, this period of time inside of the holidays. It didn't just exist there, but he actually didn't discipline his children either. So he was out of control. He did whatever he wanted to do. He ate whatever he wanted to eat. He was undisciplined. He didn't discipline his children. He had two sons. One's name was Hophni and one's name was Phinehas. I don't know where they got this baby naming book from. I don't know where they got it from, but they got it. It's from somewhere. And so on the ore chart, this is the way it would look. Eli would be at the top of the ore chart, and then just beneath Eli would be his two sons that existed laterally. And his two sons were evil. Like they would profane the sacrifices inside of the temple because the tradition was is that the nation of Israel would bring their sacrifice and it was usually an animal and it was usually a type of animal based upon their income and they would, they would sacrifice this animal to the Lord to atone for their sins for that particular year. And they would make fun of, they would make a mockery of. Not only that, it says that they were having sex with the maids, those who cleaned up after the sacrifice, that they were forcing the maids to have sex with them inside of the temple. So here's the ore chart. Eli, his two sons, and at the bottom of the organizational chart is Samuel. Why? Why is he at the bottom? Well, first of all, he's a boy. How many babies do we have inside of the room? You're the baby of the family. Wave at me. I'm the baby of the family. Right? We start off at the bottom of the totem pole, but then we eventually take over everything. You know what I'm saying? We start off way down at the bottom of the org chart, but then we eventually rise up through the ranks. And this is what is happening with Samuel. He's a boy and he's just, he's just learning to earn his keep. And so he's just a kid. But then it points out what he had on. He had on a linen ephod, which would be equivalent to just hand-me-downs. It was just hand-me-downs. There was nothing significant. And if you knew about the sacrifice and, and, and everything that went into uh, being a participant inside of the sacrifice within the temple, that everything was sacred, but not his clothing. He was an errand boy. He basically just had hand-me-downs. I already revealed to you that I'm the baby of the family, which you know, I, I know a little bit about hand-me-downs. Got two brothers and two sisters, two older brothers, much older than me. And so clothing was handed down to me, and Cool had left that clothing five to seven years ago by the time it got to me. Like jeans, had holes in them. I mean, we lived in Theodore, so they had a little skull can right there, you know, that little imprint as well. Shirts had holes in them, but they, it was good enough. Wear them, right? And we believed in handing down everything inside of the Stanley family. We even handed down bath water. That's too much information, isn't it? <laughs> Two brothers would go take a bath. All right, it's your turn, Blake. And that is disgusting. You know what? They were bathing in there, right? Yeah, it's nasty. Now, we did it because it was an economic decision, but it was done to Samuel because he was treated as an inferior individual within the temple court. He was just a boy. 
But the description that was made of him was that he was a boy who served the Lord. Remember, in the middle of all of this, and we just reiterated what all of this meant, all of the evil, all of the issues, all of the problems, all of the abuse of power, all of the corruption that existed. It says in the middle of all this, this little boy served God. So the question that I'll roll into the room, and this is sort of like rolling a grenade into the room, is I'll just say, I'll just ask this. Is that, could that same thing be said of you as an adult? I can't tell you the number of people that stumble into my office and they go, Blake, man, pray for me. I got a bunch of issues going on at work. Man, my boss is evil. This person's evil. I'm surrounded by a bunch of sinners. They go, man, you must have it made here, right? You're surrounded by a bunch of Christians. It's not what it's cracked up to be. I can tell you that. Because we're imperfect people as well. And so the question is, is in the middle of your circumstances, can it be ascribed to you that you're serving God? So the next question, I'll walk away from that one quickly. The next question is this, why would God take this miracle baby, Samuel, who was brought into the world, given to his mother, Hannah, why in the world would, would he subject Samuel to this type of environment? And that's the question that I want to answer today. And that's the question that's going to lead us to the power of empathy because Samuel is doing it right and he's being treated all wrong. All the surface level, at the surface level, it looks like Eli and his boys are blessed, man. They're, they're at the top of the food chain. They're living it up. They're doing whatever they want to. And good old Samuel is being victimized. But obviously, God based upon my knowledge of his character, is not happy with this. And so early one morning, he woke Samuel up. What's up with God waking you up early in the morning to talk with you? Can he work with you between nine to five, you know what I mean, banker's hours? Waking you up at two, three, four, five in the morning? This is what he does to Samuel. He wakes him up early in the morning, and he begins to speak to him. And this is what God told Samuel, and this is a summation. You can read it for yourself inside of 1 Samuel. It says, I'm going to deal with Eli and his household. And he did. Both of his sons went out with the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They thought they were protected. They were God's chosen people, but because of their lifestyle choices, God allowed them to be killed in battle. And then when the news reached the desk of Eli, it says that he falls straight way back in his chair and he broke his neck. And in a moment, this boy who was at the bottom of the org chart begins to rise to one of the most highly regarded prophets of all of Israel. Through a process of time, Samuel becomes the mouthpiece of God in Israel. And, and the story, man, is unbelievable. I would encourage you, take some time. If you got a couple of days off and read about the exploits that he did inside of the name of God. Unbelievable how God used this, this prophet by the name of Samuel. But some time has passed. And he's years removed from being that boy in hand-me-downs in the temple. And a lot has happened. God has used him in many ways, including moving Israel from a theocracy to a monarchy. He was the guy that went and found the first king. That's pretty important, right? He went and found a gentleman by the name of Saul. And, and Saul, if you know anything about him, he did some really dumb stuff. You can read about it inside of an incredible book called Broken Crown. You'll get that in a little bit, okay? Saul's dumb stuff caused him to be rejected as king. 
Meanwhile, Samuel is sent to find King Next, and God tells him the household, but he doesn't tell him the who. He says, go to this person's house. It's a guy's house by the name of Jesse, but he doesn't say, and you're going to go and find, fill in the blank, here's his name, here's the guy that you're looking for. So Samuel, he has to go kind of undercover, incognito, inconspicuous, because he knew that if Saul found out that he was going to appoint the next king, it was going to be off with Samuel's head. And so he goes under the, the pretense of, of sacrificing. And so he approaches Jesse's house to pick up the next king. And he, he grabs Jesse and his sons and he consecrates them. And he brings them to the temple so that they can make a sacrifice. Look at what happens next in 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning with verse 4. It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and saying, do you come peaceably? Because Samuel was a bad dude, right? He was the prophet. So a lot of times what happened when the prophet came to down, he brought a sword with him. He brought the judgment of God with him. And so when Samuel came into town, he's like that crazy uncle that you have that comes to Thanksgiving. It's like, oh God, that uncle's coming? You're terrified because you don't know what is going to happen. This is Samuel. Samuel is coming into town, and the question is, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He's talking to Jesse. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointing is before him. He's beginning the interview process. He looks at this strapping dude, man, that does not skip leg day at the gym. Doesn't skip anything at the gym. I mean, this guy is strong. This guy is good looking. The problem was they already had one of those kings. Saul was strong. Saul was strapping. Saul was good looking. They had a king that looked like him, but God had rejected Saul. And in return, he's also rejecting Eliab. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. So God is speaking to him as he's interviewing these candidates to be the next king of Israel. Think about that. That's crazy, isn't it? So here he is, and God is saying, I've rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, can I offer a bit of conjecture here? I don't know why I asked that, because I'm going to do it anyway. I got a microphone. This is the Bible. What I'm about to offer to you is just conjecture. You see, I believe, and I know conjecture is a dangerous thing, especially when you're handling Scripture, but I believe that you don't have to stretch too far out to see what God is doing here with the words that he just gave to Samuel. He's waking something up on the inside of him. He's waking those memories up on the inside of him. When he was just a boy dressed in a priestly ephod, hand-me-downs, overlooked, mistreated, underappreciated, unimportant. He's waking those things up in Samuel. So continue in verse Samuel chapter 16, verse 8. It says, Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before him. And Samuel said, Nope. He's not it. And then Jesse made Shama pass. Nope, he's not it. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before him. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? 
And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And in walks David, smelling like sheep, dressed down while his brothers are dressed up. He's holding the inferior position of the family, bottom of the totem pole, all the way down. You'd have to flip the page to find him on the organizational chart inside of Jesse's household. And I can't help but to think that when this young man walked in, that Samuel saw himself in David in step sympathy. Samuel must have thought to himself, I've been there. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be you. And in a moment, God said, he's the guy. In verse 12, and he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. So if you were to boil the verses we just read, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 4, all the way down to verse 12, what would rise to the surface is a word called empathy. Now, empathy is not to be confused with the word sympathy. They're often mistaken, and they are siblings. I think they're kin, but they're not identical twins. You see, sympathy equals feeling. And all of us can exercise sympathy. Like, we can feel sorry for someone. I used to go to the Braves game all the time when I lived in Atlanta, watch them lose. And I would go to the stadium and I would walk outside of the stadium and there would be homeless people that would have their change cups and I would throw whatever change I had in and I felt sympathy for them. I patted them on the head. Oh, I'm so sorry. Here's some change. But empathy equals understanding. You see someone going through painful circumstances and you're able to understand them because you have been in their shoes. Now, can someone express empathy if they haven't had a similar or identical circumstance? Sure they can. Is empathy easier to ascertain if you're able to scroll through the experiences of your life and find a life scenario that maps to another's life scenario? Absolutely. Typically, the only thing we usually find void of experience is sympathy. If we don't have the experience, if we've never placed our feet inside of that other person's shoes, if we don't have an identical happenstance that has taken place inside of our lives, then, then all we have is sympathy, usually. But when we have gone through it, when we've had the same experience, all of a sudden we step past sympathy into empathy and empathy is greater than sympathy. Jesse says to Samuel, none of these boys are king. Is there anyone else? Jesse, well, there's this youngest kid that I have. He's, he's out in the pasture, he's tending sheep. And in steps empathy into Samuel's life. Samuel could go past sympathy into empathy because he had been there before. Let me explain empathy to you like this. Maybe you'll understand. How many fellas do we have in the room? Wave at me, fellas. All right, let me know you're there. You're here. How many of you fellas have ever been dumped by a girl before? Just wave at me. Just go ahead. It's church. Be honest. Don't lie. And once upon a time, there was this seventh grade boy head over heels in love with a seventh grade girl. After an extremely long two-week relationship, the seventh grade girl breaks up with a seventh grade boy. The seventh grade girl didn't even do it herself. 
She told a friend to tell the seventh grade boy that she no longer wanted to be the seventh grade boy's girlfriend. Seventh grade boy calls his mom to come pick him up from school under the false pretense of, I've got a stomachache, mama. Seventh grade boy comes home, goes straight to his room, slips into his waterbed. Anybody have one of those? Turns on the radio and the hit song at the time begins to play, We Belong Together. <laughs> and you know that I'm right. Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? It's as if it's yesterday. Although we've come to the end of the road. You remember that song, Boys to Men? You bunch of sinners. <laughs> and this seventh grade boy cried himself to sleep. Ladies and gentlemen, I am that seventh grade boy. <laughs> That's empathy. That's empathy. If you've ever had your heart broken before, you can connect with me. You get it. You could tell your story, right? Here's a great truth. Our pain has a purpose. The pain that we've experienced in 2019, this past decade, it has a purpose. Empathy is being able to crawl down in that dark hole with someone and being able to say, I know what it feels like to be down here. I understand your pain. I understand the process that you're going through. I get it, I understand it, I know what it feels like, I know the emotional bankruptcy that you feel inside of your heart right now, I understand. Similar pain creates a special fraternity between people. Just the other day I was talking with a fellow executive pastor who has retired, and I was explaining to him a predicament and I could just tell he got it, you wanna know why? Similar experience. I had a speech impediment when I was a kid. I stuttered badly. And so whenever I see a child who has a speech impediment, I, I connect with them even though I don't even know who they are. Because I understand their pain. I understand what it feels like to be treated as if you're dumb. Because you couldn't talk clearly. Back in April of 2016, I lost my dad. My wife and I went back into the hospital room and, and there was laying his lifeless body. This man who I viewed as a hero, couldn't nothing. Man, my daddy could whip your daddy. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. <laughs> nothing, could, nothing could hurt him, but here he is dead. Laying in a hospital bed, my wife and I are holding hands as we're having this last experience with my dad. What you don't know about my wife is that she lost her dad when she was 10. And she climbed down in that dark hole with me. And she was able to say, I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like. You see, when we're going through it, when we're going through hell, and we don't know why we lost our job, we don't know why in the world God would subject us to a cancer diagnosis, we don't know why we lost that loved one, we don't know why in the world we had to experience that issue with that loved one, we don't know why in the world someone would have stabbed us in the back in that way. We don't view it as a gift, do we? We view it as a curse. We don't recognize the power, but you know when you recognize the power of empathy? is when you connect with someone who's, went, who's been through a similar identical happenstance and you're able to go, I get you, dude. Power. I know how you feel. 
because I felt this way before. And this is what I found. See, what if I told you the pain we experience has a purpose and that purpose is being able to connect with people, not for our glory, but for the glory of God so that the gospel might be proclaimed. Who in the world would want to connect with you if you've never been through any stuff? That's the reason why in Jesus' kingdom manifesto, his sermon on the mount, that's the reason why he said, hey, it's going to rain. And you know who it's going to rain on? The just and the unjust. It's going to hit, the same raindrops are going to hit both groups of people. And those that are unjust are going to look at the just and they're going to see the difference in how we respond to the situation. And you're going to have an opportunity to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the power that we have in empathy. You see, empathy is a curse, but it's also a powerfully blessed gift. And as a Christian, it connects us to a lost and dying world. As a Christian, it affords us the opportunity to be able to point to the one great empathizer who has been touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but without sin. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15. You might want to jot that down because it's not going to come up on the screens, but this is what it says. We don't serve a high priest. It's talking about Jesus who can identify with our weaknesses. But he was subjected to humanity. Like Jesus came into this earth, man, and he was a baby. Think about that. It's the only time in human history where a baby didn't become a king, but a king actually became a baby. He grew up through teenage years. He had B.O., bad breath, and bad hair. Every morning when he walked up, he, he, he woke up. This was Jesus. He went through the process of life where he was betrayed and he was, and he was murdered and mocked, all of the above, so that he could empathize with you at your weakest moment. You don't have someone that you're serving, that you're looking at that hasn't been where you are, that hasn't been in your shoes. But, but the beautiful part of that, it says, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So today inside of this space, I wanna ask you to do me a favor. As we conclude 2019 and move into 2020, as we leave this decade and enter into another, the question is, would you quit looking at your pain as a, as a curse and start looking at it as a gift? Because when you start looking at it as a gift, oh man, there is great power, untapped potential that we can drill deep down into and it connects people to us so that we can connect people to him. I, I wanna pray with you. Father, we love you and we thank you, God, for every single person inside of this room today. And I don't pretend to know what those that have walked in this room are going through, but I, I do know that they're going through something. They brought baggage with them. They brought issues with them. They brought pain with them. But Lord, I just pray that, that this message would cause them to be able to 
to transition away from looking at their pain as, as a curse and look at it as a gift so that they can find the power through empathy to connect people to you. Lord, if there's anybody inside of this room that doesn't know the great empathizer, Father, I pray that inside of this room today that they would make it right with him. That they would take their pain and be able to hand it over to the great empathizer. God, thank you so much for doing a work inside of this room through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.